Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. Good morning, church. Good morning, those joining us in our online campus. It's my honor to close out this Heaven series today. And I want to start by telling you a little bit about my family. So I have four children, all 10 and under. And one special thing, I mean, they are amazing kids, but there's one special thing about them. And maybe it's true of your kids as well. They are hungry all of the time. Like literally, like when we were stuck in the house during a uh, snowpocalypse, um, it was like my wife and I were working at a concession stand. We got snacks, I'm hungry, we got snacks. It was just like non-stop. Side note, I told y'all we didn't want that snow, but y'all were like, no, we want snow. And then a day later, nobody wanted it. But when they, we have a tool that my wife and I use when they come to us hungry all the time. We always tell them, you know what? You're misinterpreting your hunger for thirst. A lot of the times our bodies get dehydrated and when we think we're hungry, we're actually just thirsty. So drink some water and you'll be fine. That usually just, they leave at that point. <laughs> and here's the thing, side note, if you have any medical journals that say that's not true, please keep them to yourself because it's saving me a lot of money at this point. But I do believe this is true that hunger is much like thirst in that they mimic each other in their desire in our heart. But we go to hunger because it's more pleasurable than drinking water. We go to the more pleasurable out of the necessity of drinking water. So, so we say, I'm hungry instead of I'm thirsty. And I think we do this in other areas of our life too. We misinterpret or misdiagnose desires in my heart and we go to the pleasurable instead of the right thing. And let me give you an example. We're a room filled or people watching online filled with desires, with loves in our heart, things that we think we want or even think that we may need because we think it's going to provide something for us. In the end, we get that thing and it cannot deliver, but we hoped it would deliver. So let me give you an example. You know, if we had a bigger house, if we had a bigger house, then, you know, I would be content. I would be content if I got this bigger house. Because as I look on Instagram, everybody else seems happy. Everybody else seems like everything's going great. It seems perfect. And they have a bigger house. So if I had a bigger house, then I would feel better. But what happens when we go after that thing that we think is going to fulfill us? We feel empty again. And we don't understand because it must not be that we need a bigger house. Maybe that we needed a second house. Or maybe it's not a house at all. Maybe it's I need a new car. If I had that car, then in my life, I would feel more fulfilled because I have this new car. Maybe it's a different relationship. This relationship is the thing causing the discontentment in my heart. If I was in a out of this relationship or in a different relationship, then I would feel content or a new job or you could name it. Or maybe you could say it yourself. You're saying it in your heart right now. I've been there. But at the end of the day, none of those things fill you. It's because we're trying to make it do something it was never meant to. We're trying to eat when we're really thirsty. I love this quote from Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven. It says, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. 
that maybe that desire inside of us, maybe that thing we're longing for has nothing to do with comfort at all. Maybe it has nothing to do with the pleasures of this world at all. That we go to those things because we're trying to make a comfortable, pleasurable heaven here. But the thing we're really longing for is heaven itself, that we were created for this, not necessarily the place of heaven, but the reality of heaven. Because the reality of heaven is this, that we dwell with God and all of our desires and all of our wants and all of our loves are fully met in him. That maybe, just maybe, we've been desiring heaven all along. And I believe as we look in this passage, you'll see that homesickness, you'll see that we were truly created for heaven and that's where we are fully formed and fully found. Uh, in First Thessalonians is where we'll be today, chapter four. Uh, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but if you do, you can read along with me. This is First Thessalonians chapter four, starting in verse 13. This is what the word of the Lord said. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that those who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down or appear from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So as we look at this passage, I want us to see a little bit of context of what's happening here. So Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. So if you were to go read Acts 17, we're not going to do it here, but you can do it on your own. Paul goes to Thessalonica and basically plants this church. So this church is very special to his heart. And there's some things that happen that cause him to leave the city and not return. So you can read what happened there in Acts 17. But the thing is, what I want you to picture is picture you planted a church in a city. And you have to leave and you can't go back, but you want to write them to encourage them, to give them hope. That's what's happening here. Paul cannot return to them, but he cares for them deeply. So when we read these words that we just read, we understand that Paul's writing out of compassion, out of love and true relationship with these people. And he's writing to care for, minister and counsel them. And he gives us this passage, which is one of the most comforting and hope-filled passages in the Bible so that... We had a man pass away in the church this week, man of God, beautiful man of God who passed away. We had the funeral in this room and Pastor Jeff led that funeral. And you know what verse he started with to read to them, to give them comfort and hope? The one that we just read. To care for them, to give them hope. So how does this passage give us hope? Let's look at the first Verse in this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. The first thing I want you to see is this Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to be uninformed. And that's literally the reason why we're doing this heaven series. So as a body of Christ, we can say that we're not uninformed in heaven, that we could gather all the things that the Bible says so that we can be informed and not uninformed. But here's the thing. The reason why we are uninformed, I think sometimes it's not because we don't have enough information. It's because we are overformed with information about heaven. 
We have so, the world tries to tell us all these things about afterlife and heaven. And what we have to do is be able to filter, filter that through what the word of God says. Because here's the thing, we, we often tell stories to ourselves when someone dies or passes away to make ourselves feel better, good or bad. Like recently, my, my father passed away um, not too long ago from a heart attack. And it had been a drought in Mississippi where he lived for a, a good while. And the day after he died, we're in the funeral home and um, just planning all the, the details there. And one of my family members, it starts to rain. And one of my family's members looks at me and says, my dad's name was Mike. It was like, Mike did that. Mike made it rain. And I promise I said this just to lighten the mood. I wasn't messing with him too hard. I said, my dad was a hard worker, but you think he's already over the weather at this point? He already got a promotion to be number one weather guy? They got bad at me, but I, it was, I lightened the mood. But that's the thing is we always sometimes tell these stories to ourselves about afterlife and heaven. And the reason we do that is to find some kind of comfort, some kind of hope. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, but we want to be as informed as we can about what the Bible says about death and the afterlife. But I do believe that God supernaturally cares for his people. He does send us signs and wonders and comforts and joys, whether it be a sunrise where the Holy Spirit wells up in our heart. It makes us think of the lost loved one, that he does things to care for us. But we also want to filter through that for what the Bible actually says. And what he's doing here in Thessalonica is they have some serious questions about the afterlife. They have questions about death and the afterlife. It says that those who uh, were sleeping in death, and your translation may say those who had fallen asleep, don't be confused by that. That is a term used in the ancient world a lot and in scripture, that those who have fallen asleep is just someone who had died. In fact, we heard Jesus say when Lazarus dies, he says, let's go to our brother who was falling asleep. And the disciples are confused by that. But he was like, no, he's falling asleep. What they're going to do is resurrect him from this falling asleep, this death. So death is equivalent to falling asleep. But why are they struggling so much? This is the question I want to ask here is, why are they struggling so much with thoughts of death and the afterlife and loved ones who had passed away? And here's a couple of different things that it possibly could be. It could be number one, there were early church and false teachers had come in and started teaching them wrong things about heaven, wrong things about the afterlife and where, where their loved ones were and if they were coming back in any way. Or they were such a new church that they didn't truly understand anything about the afterlife or heaven. They knew the core theology that Paul had taught them in Acts 17, because when he came, it said he taught them, Jesus died and rose again, and this is our hope. So he, they understood these things, but they didn't understand these other things about afterlife or simply this. They were so overwhelmed with grief of losing their loved one that they just needed to be counseled to and reminded the truth of where the hope was found and that they would see their loved ones again. More than likely, I believe it's probably a mixture of these three is why Paul is writing this. There was false teachers. They were early. They were trying to understand, and they were also overcome by grief. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're not overcome by grief, but you're wrestling with the grief of a lost loved one may have been years ago or fresh on your heart right now. You're watching online because somebody sent you this link because they knew you were struggling with heaven and the afterlife. Because here's the thing, a series like this, it really taps into our heart when it becomes personal. When it becomes personal to our life and intertwines with our life, we care more about the content in a series like this because it has become personal to us. 
Because a lot of times we can know about something, we could talk about something, but until it intertwines with our life, it never truly becomes personal. In fact, for me, heaven didn't truly become personal until September of 2011. In September of 2011, my firstborn son, who was 15 minutes old, passed away in my arms. And at that moment, heaven became more personal than it ever had. And here's the thing, we knew that he was gonna pass away, but we didn't know the hour and we didn't know the day, but we knew it was coming. Because at our 20-week sonogram, we found out that we were having a boy. We were so excited to start our, our first child with having a boy, but we also found out that he had a rare disorder where life outside the room was gonna be difficult and short more than likely. So that's, a, that's hard news to hear of a new family looking to have their first child, knowing that our first son was gonna pass away. We just didn't know when, but we just had to wait. So we did anything we, we knew how to do. We felt so out of control, but the one thing we could control is let's learn everything we can about heaven. Let's learn everything we can about the afterlife because we wanted to know and not be uninformed. So what we did, we, we had a bunch of resources and there's three resources I wanna point out to you because maybe they'll minister to you and where you are, someone you know. The first one was Safe in the Arms of God by John MacArthur, which just talks about where children go when they die. And then there's the book Heaven, I already quoted it. Randy Alcorn is one of the best books on heaven. I could more highly recommend it to you. And the third one was Holding On to Hope by Nancy Guthrie. But what we did was these, these three resources help us look in the Bible, see what the Bible says about heaven and the afterlife. And we wrote those truths on our hearts. So when the storm came, we were as prepared as you can be. So when the storm came, when that night came, when he passed away when he was born at 32 weeks. We had written the truth of God on our hearts and we had hope. And I'll say this to you just to close the story is this, is, this is gonna sound crazy, but in that moment when he passed away in my arms, I have never felt closer to God than I ever have in that moment or even since. And I know that sounds wild, but I'll explain it to you like this, that I believe when Jesus performs miracles in the Bible, when he would perform a miracle, that there is a veil between heaven and earth. And when he would perform a miracle, the veil was opened and heaven would come in and a piece of heaven would affect earth in a real way. So when you see a miracle, something happening out of the supernatural, it is heaven and earth becoming one just in that moment and in that special place. Well, in that moment, I knew because I had prepared my heart that I was handing my son from my arms to the arms of Jesus. And the supernatural was that I had prayed so much for that moment and I needed him so desperately in that moment that he wrapped his arms around me and I felt closer to the Lord and prepared at that moment. But I, don't hear me say that it didn't hurt. Don't hear me say that I didn't grieve, didn't, that I didn't scream out to the Lord. It was so painful. And this is what I want you to hear today is this, that though it hurt, there was hope. Though it hurt, there was hope. And I knew that I was, that the Bible had taught me that we grieve, but we grieve not like the world does. I say it like this. 
Followers of Christ should grieve, but biblical grief is tethered to hope. It doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, don't grieve. He said, when you grieve, we do not grieve like the world does. We do not grieve like ones who do not have hope. In fact, we grieve with hope that though it hurts, there's hope. And when we grieve, we grieve forward. We believe that it will not always be this way. That is our hope. I love this lyric from one of my favorite songwriters, Andy Squires. It says this, it says, in winter, I believe you but in springtime, I see you. And what I love about that is as we sit in winter, when we were sitting last week, when we were in the snow, the thing that got us through the week of being stuck in the house was belief that one day the snow would melt, that one day winter would go away. The thing that gets me through the winter is knowing that spring will eventually come because this is the most beautiful thing that God wrote the gospel into all of nature, that every season there is winter and then there is spring. From darkness comes light and from that light becomes new birth, renewal. All the plants begin to grow again. This is the story of the gospel, that our hope is that God will make all things new again, that in the darkness of the winter of our heart, we believe that it will not always be this way. Because the thing about homesickness, if that's true, that our hearts are meant for heaven and we're homesick for heaven, sometimes homesickness is not just tied to a house or to a place, it's tied to a person at that place. So when we're homesick, we don't just miss the structure, we miss the people in the structure. And then when we grieve, when we're homesick for heaven and when we have a loved one who's passed, part of our homesickness is elevated now because we have a loved one who is there. Because when someone dies, the hole that we had in our life, that, that gaping hole that's missing, grief fills that hole. And that's a natural thing. The Bible talks about grief all the time. It fills that hole in our life. But the thing is this, that when we have someone we love in heaven and we were made for heaven, then our life becomes a little bit different that we're caught in this mixture of the already and not yet to where we have one foot in earth and one foot in heaven because someone we love truly is there. And in some ways, that's a good thing that we can live with this eternal perspective that one day we will see them again, that there is hope because here's the hope that I hold on to. That on that day, the day that I pass away and go to heaven or the day that Jesus comes back, whichever one comes first, I will see my son I will grab his hand and we will turn and look at the one who made it possible for us to be together again. And his name is Jesus. That is the hope that Paul wants the church at Thessalonica to see that one day we will be with our loved ones again. Look what the verse goes on to say. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So how do we have hope? What do we believe in? And he already taught this to them in Acts 17. He taught the church this, and he's coming back to remind them, we believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we believe this core truth of the gospel. And because of that, we believe that God with Jesus will bring those who had fallen asleep. So those who had died, he, we believe that there will be a resurrection together one day because God resurrected Jesus. He will resurrect all of us one day. Um, according to the the Lord's word, we tell you that those who are still alive, who are left behind until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's reminding them of the hope that Jesus' work that he's already done is proof. That's what we have faith in, that Jesus will come again and do what he proved he could already do with his death and resurrection, which is resurrect the living and the dead. 
So in this moment, I want to reiterate something that we've already talked about here, but I think it's so important for those who may be grieving is where are our loved ones who have passed away? We've already said this, but I want to remind you by reading uh, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 7 to you. This is what the Word of God says in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven, notice that, a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he dwells with them. They will be with his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, pain, or old order of things has passed away. He who seated on the throne said, I am making all things new, that hope of spring. Then he said, write down these words for they were uh, trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. What I want you to see here is this is the the culmination of all things here in this passage. And what's culminated, you see that there is a old earth and an old heaven that is passing away. So the, he- the earth they're talking about is current earth and the heaven they're talking about is the current heaven. So our loved ones who are passed away, some, some theologians call this intermediate heaven. I like the term present heaven. So there is a heaven that loved ones who have passed away who are believers, they go to present heaven. And there is no difference between present heaven and the eternal heaven, except for the fact that it's eternal. So all things that are true in future heaven is true in current heaven right now. But when this moment comes, heaven and earth will become one and the old heaven will pass away and the old earth will pass away. It's not a lesser heaven, but it's just not an eternal heaven. But the purpose of this passage, the reason Paul is saying this, he's saying all this because of this. He wants the readers to know what we have hope in. We have hope that Jesus died and rose again. And because of that, all of us, the living and the dead, will be together one day worshiping Jesus at the end of all things. And this idea of the end of all things, I love the, one of my favorite theological terms is this. The eschaton. I just think it sounds cool for no other reason. So the eschaton, this is where we get our word. Have you ever heard the, the study of the eschaton is eschatology, eschaton. And some definition is the study of last things, but I like this one better. It says the final moment of this portion of the story, because the story, as I say here, is this. It's a story that has no end. It's just the period on the sentence, the last things that the Bible talks about are the period on the sentence of this earth and the current heaven, but it's not the end of the story because the story goes on for eternity, that the eschaton is the final moment of this portion of the story. And I think that's what we're reading about here in 1 Thessalonians, this is the eschaton. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's look at the next part, portion of the verse. For the Lord himself will come down, or some of your translations may say, appear from heaven. Because remember, think about this, that if, if heaven and earth is just a veil between the two, there, there's no place to travel from, you just appear. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God. Here's the thing I want you to see first, is this is a real noisy 
It says the voice of God, the trumpet call. There's a lot of loud things happen, which to me, as I study the word, this doesn't seem secret in any way. I think the whole world will know this moment that we're talking about is a very loud, the archangel, the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So, The thing about this passage is scholars and theologians throughout history have all disagreed about when these things happen. Not that they will happen, but some, the manner of their happening. I could list some of the most famous theologians. You'd be like, oh, those people disagree on this? Because here's the thing. There is room for disagreement in exactly the outworkings of when these things happen. Because this is a tertiary theological issue. What I mean by that is, We will not disfellowship with each other because we disagree on when these things happen. It is a side issue. The primary issue Paul's already talked about, that Jesus died and rose again, and because of that, we have eternal life. That is primary. When this happens is tertiary. So there's a lot of people that believe like, does this happen at the beginning before a millennial reign of Jesus on earth? Some things thinks it happens after millennial reign. Some thinks that the Bible is figurative when it talks about millennial reign. So they believe there's no millennial reign. So those three are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. So when I was in seminary and our professor was teaching us these three, three things, he went through all of these. And then I remember a student asking the professor, hey, Professor, which one of these things do you believe is true? Which one do you stand with? He said, pre. And the guy was like, so you're pre-millennial? Believe that this will come before Jesus? He was like, no, I'm prepared for Jesus to come back. (laughs) And I believe that is the heart of what Paul's trying to tell us here and the heart of where we should be, that we should be prepared more than anything. Because this is what I truly believe. If the Bible is mysterious in how it says something, then we should just embrace the mystery. We should not try to make things clear that God has not made crystal clear. If he wanted us to see exactly times, he would have given us exactly times that we can sit in the mystery. But that doesn't mean we can't uh, study the word and and decide what we think this means. And and I think this verse is talking about the end of all things, the end of that we read around in Revelation 21. I believe those are one and the same. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. The first one is this. When it says he will appear or come down from heaven with a loud command and a loud voice. So this idea of coming down is used in the New Testament and other places. And when it is, it's a king arriving to a city. This dignitary comes, he comes and appears outside the city. So he's coming to appear. So this is the, the connection we have to those two things. And then it says that we will rise first and we will be caught up together in the clouds. In the Old Testament, when we see the presence of the Lord coming to earth, it is always veiled by clouds. It is a curtain to where we can't fully understand or comprehend the fullness of God's presence. So there has to be a cloud in between them and he comes in a cloud. On this, we are on the cloud. We are coming and that veil has been torn between heaven and earth. So there's a, there's a difference of us coming. And what does it say? We go out to meet them. Other places in the New Testament when it talks about this, it's when that dignitary comes, we go out of the city to meet the dignitary, celebrate him, and then enter the city with them. They don't go off to some other place. They come in the city together. They come and they celebrate and then they come out together as a royal welcome. And then the last thing it says is, and then they will be with the Lord forever, that there's no time between eternity and that moment. So what I want you to hear is this. 
when will heaven come? I don't know. I will say I think it's closer because of a lifetime Detroit Lions fan. They're in the NFC Championship today, so we're probably a little closer. I can't confirm that. If they go to the Super Bowl, I mean, I would be really ready. But when will heaven come? I think there's mystery on purpose. And this is what Paul goes on in the next chapter to say this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. He's like, it doesn't matter. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And here's Jesus' only own words in Matthew. This is what he says. But about the day or hour, no even knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father, that no one knows. Because this is what I want you to see is this. When my son passed away, I didn't know the day or hour he was going to pass away. I just knew he was going to. And the truth is that's actually true for all of us. One day we will pass away and we don't know the day nor the hour. Or if it's before that, Jesus may return and we do not know the day or the hour, but we know it's coming. So my question is, what do we do until then? Look what Titus says, what we should do. For the grace of God has appeared, back to this appearing, that salvation offer, that offers salvation to all people. And what does it teach us? To say no, I know it's a weird word for some of us, no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives when in this present age, before the passing of the next one, while we wait. For what? The blessed hope the thing that we have hope in, that moment that we've been learning about. Look at the next portion. The appearing of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are very his very own eager to do what is good. When we read Revelation, it says at that moment, God will be their God and he, they will be his people. That's something that God's been talking about since the beginning in the Old Testament to now that this moment will happen. He's saying he is purifying his people for that moment. So what does that look like? Look in the Lord's Prayer. I want to show you this real quick. You're like, this is a lot of scripture, Will. Then this is how you should pray. This is the Lord teaching people how to pray, giving them the model prayer. This is how you should pray. But look what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be the name or honor be the name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When he's teaching us to pray, he's not just teaching us words to say. He's teaching us ways to live, how to be in the world. What do we do until we wait? We should reflect heaven, let what's going on in heaven happen now. That if we are hopeful for that heaven would come one day, that that hope should well up inside of us and flow out to the people in our lives. And I say it like this, that our heads are not to be fixed on the sky waiting for heaven, but on the work below reflecting heaven. That the idea of all this, that we shouldn't be just staring at the sky. When is Jesus going to come back? When is he going to come back? When is he going to come back? No, we should desire with our hearts that he does return. But until then, there's work to do. Work that he's given us to do. It says, while we wait, do these things. That while we wait, we should be focused on these things. That it should be this. That the heart of eschatology, the study of last things, the heart of it is this. It's not precise timetables or meticulous charts. I just really wanted to make you write the word meticulous on the note, so that's how you spell it. It's not precise timetables and meticulous charts. 
that we're not just focused on, oh, this is going to happen, or not even fixed on the news. We can be tempted to study our timetables and study our charts and be so focused on the news. This has happened. This has happened. This has happened. Meanwhile, there's so many people that need to be cared for in the process. So what should we be doing instead? We should have diligent discipleship. And I say diligent for this. It was like, this is an urgent matter. We do not know the time. We should be diligent about discipleship. There would be humble service and compassionate evangelism. And what I mean by that is the discipleship, what did Titus tell us that while we wait, that we should say no to worldly passions and live self-controlled life. And the reason why I emphasize that no is because if we are making the mistake frequently that we're homesick for heaven, instead we're living with worldly passions and trying to fill that hole, we have to be able to, as a people of God, empowered by the Spirit, to be able to say no to the things of this world and instead live self-controlled lives. And that is what discipleship is looking more like Jesus every day. And the second thing is, is service to others because it's something Jesus talked about more than anything is serving other people. And if we're followers of Christ and service of others is not a real part of our everyday life, and then we're missing a key portion of Jesus' teaching of how to be in the world. Because if we're to live as heaven has already come, think about this, in heaven there is no sickness, there is no death, every tear will be wiped. And if that is true, And we're supposed to live as if heaven comes now. That means when someone has a tear in our eye, we have to be the first person there to wipe their tear. When someone's dying, we have to be the first person to run there and care for them. When someone's sick, we are the ones who live with them in that sickness. We run to the people that are hurting because we are called to serve one another. In fact, one of the last things Jesus did was wash the feet of his disciples to get down on his knees and humbly serve his disciples. And guys, I'm not there yet, but I pray every day that my heart would look like Jesus, being willing to serve others in that way. And the last one is this compassionate evangelism. The other thing that is true of heaven is there's no one there who doesn't know the name of Jesus. And our work till then should be an evangelism that wells up from the love in our hearts. Pastor Jeff, uh, Pastor Chase, who's our family pastor, and Mike, uh, Pastor Mike Mentor, they're all in Brazil right now. You know why they're in Brazil? It's not for vacation. It's because there's work to be done to empower pastors to go share the gospel with others, that we're called to evangelism to our neighborhoods, but also to the ends of the street. We're called to go and share the gospel, not because we have to, but because we get to. We have the privilege of doing those things that we should be taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's people that have never heard the name of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said one time, it was like, the people who have never heard the name of Jesus, will they go to heaven and said, he said, you know, you're asking the wrong question. The real question is, the ones who know the name of Jesus and didn't take it to him, will they go to heaven? He was just pushing back on them hard. But I think that's important for us to know the urgency to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth because I believe this, that the high theology of heaven, once we understand what heaven is, understand what the Bible says, what it should do is change our functional theology of now because any theology that exists in our head but doesn't flow out through our heart and our hands Maybe theology we don't actually believe. And that challenges me every day. Do I truly believe this? And I was challenged in that moment when my son passed away. Do I really believe this? Will I stand on this hope? And Paul was writing to them to change their functional theology. Now in this, the last verse in this says, therefore encourage one another with these words. The reason he was writing all of this was to give them hope and to encourage them. So as we end today, I want to I end by giving you these, these three things. From this passage, be hopeful. 
be hopeful. If you're grieving a lost loved one from the past or it's recently, this, the gospel will tell you this, be hopeful. Because Jesus died and rose again, one day we will be with them again in heaven. But don't keep that hope to yourself. Let that hope flow and overflow out of you to the people in your life. And be encouraged. He said, I'm writing these words to encourage you. And hopefully these, this passage has encouraged you today. But the idea of encouragement is not a stagnancy. It's about forward moving. Encourage you to move forward. Keep going, brothers and sisters. I know it's hard when you're grieving. I know it's hard when it's winter. But spring will come. Let that hope drive you forward. And don't just keep that encouragement to yourself. Use it to encourage others. And the final is this. Be ready. Be ready for that day because we do not know the day. We do not know the hour, but we know that it's coming. But it's not something to fear. For followers of Christ, it's what we saw is called the blessed hope. That one day we will see the face of the Father. And we will see that with our loved ones again one day. Let that be your hope. Let that be your encouragement. Let that be the truth you hold on to. When you came in, you got the elements of um, communion. The thing about communion is this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. When he was with his disciples, he knew that he would be gone one day. And he was like, do this frequently. Gather with the body of Christ and remember what I did. So as we come today, we remember what the Lord did, but we also remember what he's doing currently in our lives. But we also remember the things he promised he would do that we talked about here today, the blessed hope. But here's what I want you to see as we come to the table this morning is that there will be a day when that blessed hope comes when we no longer practice it together in this room, instead we practice it in heaven with the Lord himself. That we're seated at the table with our loved ones together and with Jesus himself. So as we take the Lord's Supper together, remind yourself that we're doing it to practice eternity, to practice what we'll do together one day. Let's pray as we go to the Lord's table. Father, I pray that you purify us, Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us how we've trespassed against us, Lord, that we can be purified like your text says, Lord. Let us come to your table as your people. On that night, he, with the disciples, he passed the bread around the room and said, this is my body broken for you, and we can take it now. And on that same night, he passed the cup and said, this is my blood spilled for you. Father, we come to your table. You have welcomed us through the blood of your son to your table, Lord, and we are grateful. Lord, I pray you fill us with a supernatural hope. Fill us with supernatural encouragement. Fill us with supernatural readiness, Lord, for you to see your face. 
We believe that because you died and rose again, so will we. And we live with that hope in our everyday life and how we live. And we ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.